I'm Donna. And I'm Carrie. And we are Paranormal Chicks. Episode 173. And as Carrie said last time, we had a great time at Kansas City. I mean, her powers are endless. It's like I just knew. I mean, you called it. Tally for Carrie. If you didn't listen to last week's episode, then you missed. We were at the True Crime Podcast Festival in Kansas City. And, well, like Donna said, we had a blast. We got to meet Donna's, you know, ultimate fellow podcaster crush, Brandon from Southern Gothic. I mean, the beard, the long hair, the height. The voice. The voice. The man, the myth, the legend. Okay. Brandon, say his last name. Sheck Snyder. Oh, she practices it as she writes it on her binder, <laughs> her trapper keeper. <laughs> Donna Sheck, Sheck Schneider. <laughs> I suck. Sorry, Brandon. He's sh- got now. You got me. Say He's it. so Schneck Schneidery. <laughs> well, I was going to say, yeah. <laughs> of course, you go Schneidery. <laughs> <laughs> well, oh, I meant God. to say like Schmexy, but then yeah, that came out. Whatever came out. So here we are. But then we got to have a meetup with some listeners where we had barbecue and drinks. Okay, Donna had water, but did she ever have a contact drunk? She may or may not have shown an inappropriate picture. Golly. I, and you know who told on me? Creep mom. God, the mom of the group. Told the other mom of the group. Uh-huh. AKA me. Like, Donna was like, Carrie's coming, put it up. Yeah, I was like, sorry, I can't show you. Can't show the rest. Sorry, I gotta go. Bye. <laughs> And, like, literally, Carrie stepped in, and Creep Mom was like, Donna was showing, blah, blah, blah. I was like, I'm sorry. I was like, Donna! Uh-huh. I was like, I'm sorry. I'll go to my room. Cat was like, now that she knows, show me. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, okay, well, I mean, she yelled at me, so, okay. <laughs> oh, my gosh. And this is why, well... We can't do lives. <laughs> but you know what? Carrie did do a panel, and she was freaking awesome at it. Gross. <laughs> you were. And I'll just say, uh, Brandon hosted it, and he was amazing. Oh, my God. Oh, God. I just want to make him blush as much as I'm making you blush. You're not making me blush. You're no. making me go, oh, oh God. God. His poor wife. She understands. She's cool. See, this is why you can joke around, because she's cool. Yeah. If she wasn't cool, then be like, we met this awesome guy. You should listen to his podcast and moving on. But they're both awesome. We also had, like I said, Kansas City Barbecue that, you know, they're known for. And Donna goes, this chicken's really good. And we were all like, "Um, well, it's turkey, so that's good. (laughs) Which, I don't know. It was kind of dry. Like, I like my chicken, so... Because the turkey that I normally have that I don't like turkey, it's real moist. And I don't like that. Yeah, but that, see, okay, how you're describing it makes it sound like it wasn't good. Uh, it was Because delicious. most people think dry meat is not good. Mm-mm, it was good. But it was good. Mm-hmm. And not because it was dry. You're just, you, you, you know what? Don't describe meat to people. Unless you're <laughs> showing those pictures again. <laughs> well, and I went, I was like, well... I know what this is and got some sausage. I was like, I know this. Okay. I have all the picture proof of this. <laughs> oh, my God, y'all. But seriously, we had a lot of fun. We're so glad that we got to actually meet some OG listeners and some new listeners. So that was really awesome. And hopefully we can meet these people in the future. Oh, you mean 
Patreoners! That's right. So thank you so much, Rebecca S. from Ohio. Kathleen N. from Georgia. Kat D. from California. Cynthia F. from Ohio. Dusty D. from Texas. Aaron B. from Oregon. Robbie R. from Missouri. Miranda F. from Pennsylvania. Debbie W. from Virginia. And Haley H. from Utah. Thank y'all so much for joining Patreon. We really do appreciate your support because, hey, without y'all, we couldn't do stuff like go into Kansas City for this True Crown Podcast Festival. So thank y'all so much for supporting us because it makes stuff like that possible. All right. Well, with this story, we're starting with the move-in day of the Pratt family into their new home in Norman, Nebraska. Norman's a super small rural town, like population at the time of this story in 2012 wasn't even 50. Holy shit. Yeah. That's smaller than some of those towns we went through going up to Kansas City. Right? Where y'all, for the first time, I saw Amish people. And it was very exciting. That might have been the highlight of my trip. Really? It was definitely in the top three. Okay, top three I'll give you. But meeting creepsters, meeting Brandon, and then Amish. But like, I have talked to him before. Okay, so take him out then. But <laughs> meeting the creepsters definitely trumps the Amish. Yes, yes. But I saw them. They exist. Well, duh. I know they exist, but like I actually saw them. People eat their cheese all the time. <laughs> but I haven't. Okay, but seriously, really small town. And so this was a total change of pace for the family, but it was exactly what they wanted and what they thought they needed. The Pratt family consisted of Randy, the dad, Danielle, the mom, and their two daughters, Rhiannon, who was the oldest, and then Riley. But before the girls were born, Randy and Danielle had a son together. Unfortunately, he passed away soon after they were married. And of course, they loved their daughters and were super thankful for everything, but they still had that void and they ached for a son. And the older the girls had gotten, they begged for a brother. They wanted a bigger family. And so at this point in their lives, Danielle and Randy had decided to foster and hopefully adopt a boy or more into their family. And that was the cause for this move. They needed a bigger house for their hopefully expanding family. Move-in day was full of excitement and anticipation. Rhiannon was around 13. So, of course, at this time in her life, it was very chaotic. But she was really excited for the change of pace. She was a team player. She knew this is where her family needed to be. And she was determined to be MVP. And Riley, the younger sister, she was over the moon about finally getting her own room. She loved her older sister and thought she was amazing and idolized her in the way that siblings do. But she was like, oh my God, my own space. Oh my gosh. Well, when picking out their rooms, the girls noticed this rundown barn on the property. They, of course, go down to check it out because kids are fearless as fuck. But see, they also had a dog, and it followed them out there, but then it peaced out before going in. And see, I would have peaced out too, but I'm chicken shit, and these girls weren't. Riley said the instant she walked inside the barn, it did not feel right. And the smell was like rotten wood or rotten eggs, and it was beyond bad. 
there were animal heads and stuff all over, and it just had an overall freaky vibe. Turns out it was used as like a taxidermy hobby place or something. Well, Riley had had enough, and she was like, let's jet, but Rhiannon said she felt like she was a piece of metal being pulled by a magnet, and she had to be there. So she went further into the barn to explore more while Riley left. Not more than a few steps further, she heard some faint giggling and stuff, and she turned thinking that Riley had changed her mind, but no one was there. Then she heard the young voice again, but this time it said, Mama, Mama. Rhiannon was like, okay, maybe I'm just tired and need sleep, so she left the barn and went back inside the house. Later on, Danielle and Randy explored the barn themselves, and they found this antique china cabinet that was in amazing condition. And so Danielle was like, uh, this has to be in our house. It has history of this home, and she had some of her grandmother's china that she wanted in it. And she was right. It looked amazing in their house. But that night, when Danielle was cooking in the kitchen, she too heard a young girl whisper, Mama mama. But she thought it was one of her girls who were in the living room with Randy watching TV. So of course she's like, what? Is someone calling me? You know, and after a few times, Randy gave her a hard time, you know, like, no one's calling you. Like, you're going crazy or, oh my gosh, in your old age, you know, you're losing your hearing. You're hearing things. And just little things like that. They just all shook it off and moved on. But then other things would happen. There would be unexplained footsteps on stairs. Rhiannon's hair would be tugged, but in a playful way. Like, as a kid would do it, not how we like it sexually. Danielle said that there was some weird stuff that she knew that had happened, but it was stuff that they just blamed on the kids. Like, they would come in and all the kitchen cabinets would be opened, or the fridge would be wide open, but that's stuff that... Again, the kids could do, and it's like, oh my gosh, they're so forgetful, or what were they looking for? Oh my God. If I just stood in front of the refrigerator too long in my grandma's house, she'd be like, close the refrigerator. Oh my gosh, right? Even my mom, who was like super lax, it's like, what are you looking for in there? Like, I guess she was just wanting also to be helpful, but too, like... Close the refrigerator. Yeah, close the refrigerator. Probably because we had a lot of trouble with our refrigerator. So right. It's like... Uh, Can you keep it closed so something doesn't go wrong with it again? Other times there would be things like the TV would go full volume when no one was watching it. But that's stuff you can brush off and blame it on the dog. Like, oh, it was laying on the remote or whatever. Or just technology in general. Because shit like that will happen. Or maybe it really is just ghost all the time. And I'm like, no, shit like that does happen. It happens at my house. And, you know, like, it's just a freak accident. No, it just happens because if it doesn't, then that means that all the shit with me is right. I know, I know. I'm like, (laughs) right? That just happens, right? But then one night, Danielle woke up to the sounds of little pitter patter on the floor outside of their bedroom. So she woke Randy up and was like, oh my God, one of the girls, they're not asleep. Maybe it's both because it sounded like some giggling and stuff. She's like, make him go to bed. Well, he went out. But no one was in sight. But soon, Randy heard something like a lullaby, but it was flute music. And not like a recorder. You know, like those 
Oh my God. I know. That is one thing my mama hated. The sound of a recorder? Yes. Because I could not play that for the love nor money. But I'd be like, I have to practice it. It's for school. (laughs) Oh God. But seriously, it was like some flute music. And so he followed it and it seemed to lead him to where the china cabinet was. Well, Danielle met him out there because he was gone like a little bit like, okay, what's going on? And they just kind of chalked it up to being nothing, you know, like, oh, okay, that's weird because she didn't hear it. But then their dog was staring at the cabinet and all of a sudden three knocks happened and it sounded like they came from inside the cabinet. The knocks are coming from inside the house. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and their dog started barking, staring at it. So Randy checked the cabinet, opened the drawers, opened the doors to the cabinet. And again, nothing. So again, they just kind of shook their heads, went back to bed and forgot about it. This ended up being on a paranormal witness. And on the episode, (laughs) on the episode, the dog is standing there at the very end. Like, you know, they go to bed. And so the dog's there. And then it pans up and there's like a ghost, like in the reflection of the thing and the dog's like you know and yeah. like goes off and it just cracks <laughs> you know like it's just like standing there like i know something's in there and it like looks up and there's a ghost it's like, <laughs> oh, like i told you bitches yeah <laughs> oh god this was also on the unsolved mysteries podcast too they uh they were interviewed for that well rhiannon and riley They were also seeing something, but they never really, like, talked about it because everyone started kind of being just, like, closed-lipped because they didn't want to be like, you're crazy, you're hearing things, you're this. So no one shared their experiences anymore. But they would see this shadow figure that they now refer to as the Shadow Man. The first time Rhiannon saw him, he was standing in one of the doorways of that barn, and she was in the living room by the wood-burning stove. And all of a sudden, you know, she finally, like, focused her eyes on him, and she could see the shadow moving towards her, and she froze. Like we all would. Well, all she could do was close her eyes and just, you know, like, oh my God, this is happening. Well, then when she opened her eyes, no one was there. And then one night, Riley was falling asleep in her bed. And for some reason, she opened her eyes. And when she did, she could see a shadow of a man standing in a corner by her closet door. But Riley's closet door was opened. And well, I guess your door's open because you don't have one. Right. My closet door is closed. I could not sleep with the door open. Yeah, I don't have a door on my closet. Mm Mm-mm. But you know what, though? When I was a kid, my closet door was always broken because uh, Tasmanian devil. And so (laughs) my closet never had a door, even though it had sliding doors, because it was, well, the bottom was either never on the tracks and it swung, or we'd we'd take them off. (laughs) So I don't think I've really ever had closet doors. Oh my gosh, I always did. Until one time that I wanted beads, you know, like Uh, at that point. I was just about to say, one time you had beads. Yeah. I was like, super cool. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> quote unquote <laughs> in my own in yes, my own I was just about to say in your head yeah yeah 
Okay. Insert the cranberry song. <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, back to Riley, because she was cool. And she was fucking scared, because even though she couldn't see his eyes, she knew this shadow figure was staring right at her. And all she could do was just pull the blankets up over her head. And she was just like, this is not real. This is a dream. This is not real. This is a dream. But she was like, you know what? Mm-mm. I'm not taking my chances. She went, got in Rhiannon's bed, and that became the norm for her to sleep with Rhiannon for the next two months. And if Riley had to go into her room for anything, like clothes, you know, like, oh, I forgot my, you know, like school book in there, whatever, she made sure, like, she would do like I do in your hallway that freaking terrifies me. She would reach around, turn on the light first. And then step into her bedroom. Mm-hmm. Well, then Randy wasn't the only one who would hear the flute music because Rhiannon also heard it at night. Once she heard it and she thought it was her alarm clock. And poor baby, she sat straight up thinking that she was going to be late for school. But it was in the middle of the night. And she was like, oh, my God. Whew. Because then she got to lay down in that refreshing realization that she had hours Hours left. left. I was just about to say that. Yes. But then she realized she had hours left, and that's the best feeling ever. Yes. I know. Like, mm, the best. But then she ended up not going to bed because she noticed something in her doorway. It was a shadow of a man. That same shadow that she had seen in that barn previously. But she's like, I think I'm seeing things, you know, like I'm, I heard my alarm or some kind of music going on. Now I'm seeing this. So she quickly turned on her lamp, but then no one was there. But she was already to the point where she was too rattled and she didn't sleep that night. That would be a reoccurring theme that she wouldn't get a lot of sleep. So it started, you know, just kind of breaking her down. Riley was another one to hear the flute music at night. She said that it was soothing at first, but then her bed began to shake. Like it was rocking back and forth. And all she could do was just like sit there and like, what is happening? And then she was finally able to scream for her mom. When Danielle and Randy came in, she was like, someone is under my bed because she could feel what she said was fists were punching up like and she knew in her mind like this isn't like possible. But through like the box springs all the way to her, you know, through the box springs and the mattress all the way to her, you know, it was like that powerful and it was just shaking her bed that Badly, but of course, when they looked, no one was there. So back to Rhiannon's room she went. So Danielle was at a loss because she really didn't know how to make her girls feel safe, but she didn't feel threatened like they were feeling. So she really didn't believe them, but things just kept happening. There was this one time while Riley and Rhiannon were watching TV. And Rhiannon was such a great big sister and made Riley go to the basement and get the ice cream. Why would you keep something wonderful like ice cream in a basement? (laughs) 
laundry and demons I know. go in the basement. I know. Not yummy bluebell ice cream. Uh, not sponsored. No, but it's still fucking yummy. <laughs> well, of course, Riley was here and shit, you know, when she fucking started down the stairs because it's a basement. Shit's always scary. But she mustered up all her strength and continued down because, um, hello, ice cream. She, you know, marched over to the freezer, got it. But when she turned, she was face to face with a woman in white. And this woman had an angry expression, black slit eyes, and blood running down her face and body. Of course, Riley knew she wasn't real. So she said, fuck the ice cream. And let's just be honest, they were not extra large pizzas because it had a handle on it in this show. So I would have carried that for some comfort food after this. Mm -hmm. But she ran back upstairs and what she did was drew a picture of what she just saw because she couldn't really verbally express everything she saw because it was just so much for her to take in. But she could draw every detail. Oh, to be talented. Right. (laughs) Meanwhile, I'm like... She had the, 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 uh... She had a uh, face, kind of, but, like, not yeah. like a face face, but, like, like a face. Like, it was angry, but, like, not, like, grr, she was, it was, like, grr, but, But, like, know. not, like, grr, grr, but, like, kind of grr. Yeah, like, grr, grr, that, like, can you draw it? And then it's, like, a stick figure and, like, some red on it. <laughs> it's, like, yeah, no, that's, that doesn't help. <laughs> Sorry. Pick me for Pictionary. But at this point... Rhiannon learned that shit was happening to Riley, too. And so she was like, oh, hell no. You do it to me, not to my little sister. And well, they listened. That night, they were both asleep in Rhiannon's room. And she woke up suddenly when she was being forced on her back by some unseen force. She said it was as if she was being taped down. She was paralyzed. She couldn't even open her mouth to yell. And like right beside her is Riley sound asleep. Meanwhile, you know, she was on her side and rolled over, you know, that ugh. all she could do was look eye to eye with this entity that was on the ceiling. This little girl who was on the fucking ceiling. She was angry looking. And then as soon as all of it happened, The girl disappeared and Rhiannon could move again. And that was the turning point for Rhiannon. She had felt alone in the struggle, but then when she learned that Riley was seeing things too, and then this attack, she was like, nope, this is where it stops. And so she slipped out of bed and went down the hall to her parents' room. And so she's like playing this in her mind, like, no, this is not going to happen. You know, she's having that conversation. Right before she got to her parents' door, when she was deciding all of this in her head, she felt pain on her back and cried out. She told her mom that her back was hurting, and when Danielle raised Rhiannon's shirt, at first, nothing was there. But then, three deep scratches appeared on her back. Rhiannon broke down in tears and told them everything, from the very beginning in the barn and the voices and just everything. And so this was a turning point for Danielle, too, because she was like, no one hurts my babies. Okay, they were hiding stuff from me because I didn't believe them at first. And now all of this, you know, and Randy said it was like someone was punching a hole in his chest, hearing what was going on with his 
daughters and he didn't know how to protect them. So Daniel reached out to a local team called Synergy, led by a woman named Chris. And they are kind of like the OG ghost hunters on sci-fi where they really try to find real world answers for what you're experiencing. You know, they're not dipic douche going in like demons off the bat. Mm-hmm. Well, everything was normal. So they're like, okay, okay. Like, all right, this is a good sign. Like, this is what we want. But then when they were like walking around outside, they went to the barn. And Chris said every hair on her arms just stood up when she went inside. And she said even before going inside, you could just feel the eeriness. So they did some tests and stuff in the barn. And the EMF reader went through the roof where it had been completely normal on the inside. Chris caught something that she thought was a male figure on the infrared camera. And then she felt like she was like touched from behind, like so she felt attacked. And she ended up having to rush out of the barn where she threw up because she was experiencing vertigo then. So while that's happening, the crew gathered up their stuff. And when they were putting it in the van, they saw that the videotapes from the barn had melted, like they were burned. But everything else was fine. So they still had the EVPs that they could listen to and everything. Well, they reviewed them and they heard two names, Stephen and Richard. Then when Chris had asked why the entity goes into Rhiannon's room at night and if they knew it scared her, they got an answer. Yes, she better run. What? Yeah. And so Chris said as an investigator and stuff, she's like, oh, fuck yeah, this is awesome. But as a person, you know, she's like, oh, my God, I'm I'm so scared for this poor child. You know, like, yeah, that's threatening. So they ask the family, hey, do these names mean anything to you? Like anything at all? And they didn't. So then they did some Internet searches and they just couldn't find anything. But then they found that it pointed to one person, not two separate people. And it pointed to a man named Stephen D. Richards, who we'll talk about in just a minute. Well, with this information, Danielle and Randy reached out to their local parish and had a priest come out and they walked around while he blessed their house with holy water, you know. But even while saying the last prayer in the living room, Randy's shirt got tugged on. So they weren't too hopeful it was going to work, but they were like, it can't hurt, right? But Danielle didn't waste any time contacting Synergy again. And she was like, look, even, you know, said the whole thing, like, even Randy's shirt got tugged on, like, and he normally doesn't even get fucked with. Well, Chris was like, don't worry, we'll smoke his ass out. We're coming. So they saged and stuff, did the Lord's Prayer and, you know, said, you're not welcome here, all the things. And when they finished, everything felt lighter in their house. But that old barn was still there. And later on, you know, they went in it and it still felt eerie. And it was like almost all the energy had went there. But Randy said that he was thinking of tearing it down anyway and using that area for his new shop. Because he did some like auto body stuff, I believe. So him and Rhiannon, they were like, hell yeah, that should get rid of the energy and you'd be able to work on your projects at home, you know, 
everything's good. Rhiannon said that when they were walking out of the barn after talking about tearing it down, it's like they were hit with this wave of anger or something. You know, it just like washed over them. But they were like, whatever. That's the last time, buddy, because you're out of here soon. Like, whatever. But that night, Rhiannon was asleep and she heard some noise that made her sit straight up in bed. And she was like, oh my God, something is about to happen. And then all of a sudden, she's pushed by two unseen hands back down on the bed. And then she felt like those hands left her chest and went to her neck and she's being strangled. While at the same time, Randy woke up because he noticed, you know, like, who knows why he woke up, but he noticed some flickering lights. And he looked outside because that's not normal. And he saw that the barn was up in flames. So he yelled at Danielle to wake up. We have to get the kids. We have to get ready to go. Like, we just have, you know, like, who knows what's going on? Like, why is the barn on fire? Right. Back to Rhiannon, she was at the point of, where she can no longer breathe. And just then the door opened and Danielle scooped up her daughter, got her out of bed, not knowing what she just saved her from. Because the moment Danielle opened the door, everything like just was normal again. You know, Rhiannon could breathe. It was as if nothing ever had happened, you know? But that night, the entire barn went up in flames and there was no cause for the fire. But no one was hurt during that fire. It was just at the barn. They did have a cleansing performed on their house because, you know, even though the barn was no longer there, they didn't want anything to be inside of their house. There's still a little activity, but they say it only seems to be the playful child laughter or residual sounds that they had. Everything's pretty much returned to normal or as normal as it could be. And they were able to adopt the kids that they were fostering and complete their family. Now, Danielle and Rhiannon both work with Synergy Paranormal Team because, you see, they're both sensitive. Danielle said that she caught three-year-old Rhiannon talking to no one, but she asked who she was talking to And Rhiannon said, the big man. And she's like, what big man? And she pointed to a picture of Danielle's dad, who had passed three years before. And he was like 6'6". So he was a big man. man. Yeah. Yeah. So Rhiannon works with her gifts, but Danielle works as like the project manager and like helps people who were in her position. So, okay, now, who is a Stephen D. Richards, and why does he pertain to this story? Well, he's known as the first serial killer ever hung in Nebraska. What? He's known as the Nebraska Fiend, or as the Kearney County Murderer. He was born on March 18, 1856, in Wheeling, West Virginia. I had to add that in because Randy and Shannon, shout out, He had a job at the Iowa Lunatic Asylum where his duties basically were to bury the patients who passed away. And the Omaha Herald quoted him as saying, that took away to some extent my feeling and sympathy for mankind. I could stand by a man and see him die with no more feeling than I would have for a hog. 
When I left there, I didn't care for anything and had no respect for human nature. So I'm not going to go over every detail of him, but just know he was a bad man. He traveled around doing bad things, okay? Well, he made his way to Nebraska in 1878, where he was called, jailed for some petty crime, but this is where he would cross paths with Miss Mary Harrelson, who was also in jail because she was being held on suspicion of helping her husband, who had stolen some horses, but it was thought that she helped him escape from jail, not steal the horses. Anyway, Stephen, the serial killer, he charmed her and she was under the impression that he was the one who helped her hubs escape. So she invited him back to her homestead. And this is how their friendship began and how it would soon end. So he stayed there, you know, and like they had a friendship and some say romantic involvement and she ended up like selling it to him like deeding it to him at some point who like I don't know well she had said hey you know what me and my kids are going to go see some family and friends during the winter you stay here and you know like then we'll come back and you know like we'll continue what we have well In the early morning hours of November 3rd, instead of the family leaving for Illinois like they had intended to, Stephen murdered them in their sleep with an axe. First, he killed the mom, Mary, with one hard strike to her head, but to be sure, he hit her again, you know, for good measure. Then, 10-year-old Daisy, who was asleep next to her mom, And at first, he almost lost his nerve because Daisy had stirred a little in her sleep and she said, Mama, Mama, but she stayed asleep. And then he killed her with two blows to her head. And then he moved on to four-year-old Mabel. Again, two strikes with the axe. And then he moved to the crib where two-year-old Jesse slept and he struck him three times. And Daisy did not die instantly. And after he murdered the rest of her siblings, you know, she was still moaning in pain and writhing on the bed some. So he struck her two or three more times. Then he took the bodies out of the house one by one and threw them into a hole he had dug. Yes, through, because in his confession, he said, and this is a quote, I threw her in, talking about Mary, And then I came back and carried both girls at the same time, chucked them in the same hole with their mother. Then I took the baby, Jesse, and threw him in with the rest. Oh, my God. Covered them up with a blanket and scattered straw and dirt over them. It was so just... Callous. Yes. Ugh. (sighs) Well, all of that took 30 minutes. Holy shit. Very swift. He was very, very swift. He then sold their belongings in another town, and then he took up residence in their little, like, outhouse, you know, their little, like, guest house on the property. And he said, hey, they went to Illinois to see their friends and family. They'll be returning soon. None the wiser. Well, Stephen soon befriended one of their neighbors, Peter Anderson, Until Peter got sick one day after he ate with Stephen, and then Peter went and told another neighbor that he thought Stephen had poisoned him. Uh Uh-oh. 
So Stephen was like, uh, no, my dude, not my style. So he confronted him, and then there was an argument, and then in, quote, self-defense, Stephen grabbed a hammer that was nearby and, in his own words, brained him. What? Yes. Well, as you do, you have, like, neighborhood watch and stuff, and so some neighbors were like, oh, my God, heard from the other neighbor that, oh, my gosh, Peter, our Pete Pete, might have been poisoned. Let's go check on him. So they found Stephen outside hitching up the horses, okay? Because he was getting ready to go. Yeah, he's getting the hell out of Dodge. He just brained him. Yeah, yeah, whatever okay. that means. I know what it means. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> good Lord. Okay. To be so callous and stuff, you do have to have that personality not always, but that can just lie and just be so believable. But he's like, oh, yeah, he's good. I was just checking on him. Like, he's good. Go in there. You can see for yourself, you know? So they're like, oh, okay, cool, cool, cool. Like, oh, my God, we love Steven. He is so nice. I knew he wouldn't poison him, you know? Meanwhile, Steven's like... Giddy up, horsey. Yeah, like, giddy up, go, go, go. And he stole one of the horses and escaped. Well, luckily, he was found, captured, two weeks on the run, and brought back to Kearney, Nebraska. He was tried, found guilty, and executed by hanging on April 26, 1879. Damn. He's quoted as saying, I've killed nine persons, and I cannot say I feel any worse for it. I never understood why people say persons or people. Like, I know that there's a grammatical reason, but I don't understand it. Girl, no idea. Well, at that time, and for many years after, Stephen D. Richards was the worst serial killer in Nebraska. Because, again, like, he did bad things while he was, like, traveling and robbing and all that. And so he did kill, like, his partner in crime and some other, you know, like, yeah. people. But... Also, in the name of science, people do some weird shit. So some local doctors, before he was hung, were like, hey, Stephen, um, can you consent to donate your body so we can do an autopsy? And he was like, nah, my dude, not my thing. So his gravesite was guarded because, again, he was a serial killer. People were pissed. However, everyone can be bought off because somehow his corpse was stolen the night after his execution. Yeah, because really and truly, how much money is it going to cost you to bribe somebody guarding a serial killer's right. grave? Right, like, not much. Right. Well, they found his body, and a lot of people say that it was the doctors who wanted to do the autopsy, but it was returned. With a Y incision across his chest. <laughs> and then it was dug up once again, but then... His bones were scattered all over the streets and stuff. But then the Kearney County Gazette. Say that five times fast. Right? Couldn't say it one time slow. Um, he Somehow they had got the skull and they placed it on display in the office window. As you do, you know? I mean. And if you hated this person already, you're going to really hate him now. Okay? Because like I said, he was a charmer. You know, like, he charmed this woman into thinking that he he helped her husband and then, like, lived on her property. All of the things. 
Well, a lot of people said he was charismatic and, you know, polite, articulate. He was so handsome. All of the things. So this forensic psychologist, Catherine Ramslin, she refers to him as the Old West Ted Bundy. Ugh. I know. I knew you were going to hate it. That's disgusting. I know. I knew you were going to hate it. But so all that to say... Did you catch anything that would have made you think, like, this tied together with that story? Uh, well, he lived out in the barn. Could have been the barn. I don't know. I wasn't... I mean, you said what his name was. It was, like, the... Yeah, RBJ the name. or whatever. RBJ! Stephen D. Richard? Same thing. Okay. But Daisy said, Mama, Mama, before she died. Oh. And they both heard that. Oh. Yes. I didn't remember that. I mean, I remembered that, but I didn't. I didn't put that to. I well, I tried to block that out. Damn it! <laughs> and like with the kids being there and stuff, they all heard like children's laughter, like yeah. the pitter patter. Okay, stop. And like the tugging on the shirts okay. and the hair. Yeah, I know. I'm so sad. And a little side note. The night that the fire happened in the barn was the night before they were going to adopt their foster kids. And what Randy said, it's like Stephen was trying to stop them from being a family, you know, like, Mm -hmm. what you know, whatever, like to complete their family. And he couldn't, you know, he tried, but he couldn't. And then like that final cleansing and everything, it just like took his power away. I wonder why, like, after all of that, though, that cleansing worked. And it might have been because the barn did burn. Yeah. You know, like, and maybe he had to do that to, like, try to get him some power so he could choke Rhiannon, but kind of bit him in the ass, you know? Yeah, maybe. But some people were like, well, why didn't the other people who have lived here ever had any experiences, you know, blah, 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 blah. But... Rhiannon and Danielle are a little sensitive, but like Rhiannon's really sensitive. And Rhiannon said, if you think about it, like think about, and, and again, you know, she's still young. This happened in 2012 to 2014 and she was 13 at the time. So, but she said like, just picture them being in complete darkness. And then you see this light, just this one little beam of light And so you're attracted to it. You're Mm going to go to it. And, you know, like nothing can keep you from it. And that's your only goal, you know. And she was like, and we were that light. Maybe the other people weren't sensitive. Maybe, you know, like it was just that, like the right time, but the wrong time. You know, like it was just all the right circumstances for that to have happened. Well, and to continue with, like, the light analogy, and this may be what they're saying, and you're going to be like, duh, Carrie, but if you've lived in, like, if this if this spirit is true, and it's been out in this barn this whole time, and just living out there in this darkness, and then there comes this kid that's like, do you see me? You can see me? Right. Whoa, wait. Hey, you can see me? Yeah. You know, and it's like, okay, 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 okay. I got to get all the things done so that they can see me. They can, you know what I mean? Right. And it's like, 
doing all the things. You know what I mean? Yeah. When I was watching it, I got freaking chills when she was reading the confession because there's a book. Because this man was long-winded and his confession is a whole fucking book. But she's reading it and it says what Daisy said was the mama mama part. And she's like, holy shit. Yeah. Like, this, this is what I've heard. This is what my daughter's heard. You know, this is too real. But are you surprised that his narcissistic ass is long-winded? Oh, nope. hell no. Hell no. Also, I just love, because even in the book, because you can, like, read the whole thing online, and um, he really does say, like, I did not poison. He calls him the Swede because he is a Swedish immigrant, Peter Anderson. I was going to say, he's a racist fuck. Yes. But um, he's like, I did not poison him. That is not my fashion. And I'm like, I mean, right? That would be too humane. And that's fucking not humane. Right. Ugh, but but it's like I don't know it's just like that's not it and he goes into more details on like just his childhood and just like stuff that he did it's like yeah I don't feel any remorse on blah 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 it's like animal cruelty and I was like I am not including that because it's just too much and for me to say it's too much about animal stuff because I will include it usually it was too much oh and the reason why he killed them all because, you know, he's an all-or-nothing guy, I guess, was because he had told her that he had murdered people before, you know, and he's like, she was a talker. Well, keep your own fucking mouth shut then, dumbass. Right? I'm like, no, no, no. You murdered her because you are the talker, and then you told her, and then you're like, hmm. Mm, Probably shouldn't have told her that. Yeah, And then you already had, like, he waited until she signed over the homestead to him Mm -hmm. until he got enough of it. You know, like, all of this. And it, I don't know. It was just like, hmm, today's the day. Okay. And done. And what's wild is there was another person living there, like, another worker thing. And he's outside while this is all happening. Wow. And he, and Stephen really went, dug a huge hole and went back in, killed them all systematically, carried them out, put them all in, took a shower, got back and was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I just saw him off. And the guy was like, oh, cool, man. Hate that I didn't say bye. You know, like, I'm like, that would be me. Literally, that would be me. Oh, man. But I would have been in the bathroom the whole time. That man was working. Thank God we have cell phones now or just any kind of communication because so many people, oh, they went to see their family. Yeah. And it's like, oh, okay, cool. A month later. Oh, they're still there? Oh, okay, cool. Five years later. Oh, they must have gotten, like, attacked on the way. Yeah. Someone's poisoned the water hole. Oh, man, so sad. Oh, but you live here now? Cool for neighbors. Cool. (laughs) What? Glad to have you in the neighborhood. Yeah. We have a neighborhood watch. If you see someone <laughs> digging a hole, let us know. <laughs> uh, well, he's a fucker. He really is. I never heard of him. And just and also for him to be so narcissistic and all of this, he was really popular, obviously, back in the day. But now he's 
kind of like no one knows who he is. Yeah. And I'm like, well, someone faded through history, you know? I can't wait for the day when nobody knows who the fuck Ted Bundy is. Oh, I thought you were going to say me. I was like, well, no one knows who I am now anyway. Why would I ever say that about you? Well, I don't know. I mean, I'm an asshole, but damn. (laughs) I don't know. But also, yes, Ted Bundy. Fuck him. He's the worst. He's so handsome. No, No, he's not. He's not. He's got a... Well, it's not even like he's ugly or whatever. It's just like people are like, he was so handsome. He wasn't. He's just not what you think of as a monster because people always say, oh, it's those blah, blah, blahs you have to watch out for. And they didn't say, oh, the nice white man who wears a sweater vest, he can also be a monster. That's why people say, oh, he's so attractive. Yeah, because he's not. He's not. I mean, he could be people's type. That's fine. Yeah, everybody's got a type. I mean, everybody's got to find love. Right. But. I mean, I prefer beefier. (laughs) But it's just like that. I think that's what makes me so mad. It's like, do you really think he's attractive? Like back in the day, those people, you know, saying that. I'm like, do you really think that? Or is it just because he's not A, B, or C of what you're parents and society have taught you is evil Mm -hmm. i think it's d all of the above right your story was kind of heavy with the kids with the mama mama thing i know when it ties back and you're like oh shit well i assumed i mean like i knew they were connected but i just wasn't like i guess i don't know i was pulling a carry (laughs) it's okay well mine's kind of heavy too oh great Just a content warning, this story does involve a child. And I will let you know when there are going to be some heavier parts, but just a a general content warning that this story is about a child. So if that is not something that you're in a place where you can listen to and you want to come back or you just can't listen to it all, we totally understand. Feel free to skip my part of this episode. My story came from a recommendation from Morgan A., who is a member of the Creepinati. She recommended a story that actually happened fairly close to her. It happened in Queensville, Ontario, in Canada. There was a little girl by the name of Christine Jessup. Christine was a nine-year-old little girl who was living her best life. She was very small for her age. I was listening to the podcast True Crime Anytime, and they did this story, and in that episode they talked about that she was born with this genetic disorder that made her smaller for her age so even though she was nine years old she was only 40 pounds she was she was very very thin for her age and I think it was something she was a little insecure of but she had friends and she didn't let it hold her back she lived with her mom dad and her brother Kenneth who went by Kenny she loved sports And she had a dog named Freckles, which I love because my nephews have a dog named Freckles. And I've never known anybody with a dog named Freckles other than them. So, I don't know. I just freaking loved that. And at the time of this story, she was in fourth grade. So, on October 3rd, 1984, Christine gets off the bus from school at 3.50. The bus driver corroborates that that's the time that she gets off the bus. She stops at the mailbox just like I used to do, picks up the mail and heads into the house. Now, when she gets there, no one's there. 
Some stories will say that her father was at work and that her mother and her brother were running errands. However, that's not true because the next part is actually what I found on most stories, but also came straight from her mom's account. Her father was actually in jail for just a short 18-month sentence for, like, quote, mishandling funds. So I don't know what that's about, and it doesn't have anything to do with this case, but that's where he was. He wasn't at work. He was in jail. And her mother, Janet, and her brother, Ken or Kenny, he kind of went by both, they weren't running errands. They were going to see him. And... Christine was super upset because she wanted to go see her father because it had been over a month since she had gotten to see him because he had just started serving his time. And her mom was like, Christine, you're just too little. Like, you just don't, you don't need to be going there. You're just too young to be going to this place. Like, just go to school, come home. We'll be home shortly after you get home. Like, you're just too young. So on October 3rd, when she got off the bus, that's where her mom and brother were. I wonder if other stories, when they said that, if they were trying to like skirt around that issue of the dad being in jail. Probably. You know, like if they lived in a small town, you know what I mean? Where they try not to like out people's business and that's it. But the mom's like, y'all, this is what was happening. Right. Well, and it's not, I mean, if anything, you know, When stuff like this happens, especially to kids, you know, the first thing that you look at is the family, especially if a child is missing for an extended period of time. And so it's like, no, let's nail down these parents' alibi. Right. So, I mean, if they're, if he's in prison and she's visiting him in prison, we can clearly tell where they are. Exactly. Like there's cameras, there's logs, there's people like, okay, we know where the fuck they are. Exactly. That's like one place. It's like not. He's in jail. He didn't do it. She's right there. She didn't do it. The brother right there. Didn't do it. Mm hmm. Once Christine walked in the house, put the mail on the counter, put her backpack down. It said that she was supposed to go meet one of her friends in the park. Now, I do want to say that later, like years later, Her friend recanted and said that she wasn't supposed to meet her. So I don't know. That's kind of weird. But it's kind of inconsequential to the story, I feel like. But here we are. So after Christine dropped the mail off, put her backpack down, she left the house to go to a convenience store and buy herself a pack of bubblegum. And... Okay, look, so Christine was super, super excited because that day at school, in her, like, music class, she had been given a recorder. Holy shit. Yes. When you said that in your story, I about fell out my fucking chair. Right? I was like, a fucking recorder? Are you kidding me? Right? (laughs) Oh, my God. You Like, are you fucking kidding me? Why? Of all the instruments in all the world, a recorder? I know. Why? Why do elementary teachers like, okay, y'all, here's the day we get back at these parents. But like, how in the fuck did that come up in both of our stories today? Synchronicity. So she was so excited about this recorder. Like she took it with her to the convenience store. 
When Janet and Kenny get home at 4.10, they see Christine's bike, but it's not standing up like with its kickstand, how she normally does it, because she's very prideful in her bike. She loves her bike. It's like fallen over, kind of like scratched up almost. And so they're like, that's weird. But then they go inside and they see the mail on the counter and her backpack, but no Christine. So they're like, well, this is weird. So they call some of her friends... And they're like, have you seen her? And they're like, you know, no. And so they start looking around the neighborhood, parks. Nobody's seen her. And so by 7 or 8 o'clock, Janet's panicking because it's been four hours and nobody's seen her. You know, I assume at this point she's probably called the school even. And they know that she was dropped off by the school bus at 3.50. And again, no Christine. So at this point... Janet calls the police. Police are interviewing everyone. There was a witness that said that they thought they had seen Christine talking to a man with long hair in the park. They'd seen her, you know, holding her recorder, walking back after she bought the bubble gum. So they knew that she had made it to the convenience store, bought the bubble gum, and had was working her way back home. And then from there would have stopped in the park, what have you, and would have seen whoever it was with the long hair. There were some reports of a car in the area, but really there wasn't a lot to go on. And look, I'm just going to kind of jump ahead and just tell you that as much as I hate to be this way, the police were inept in this investigation. And we're going to go into that, but this investigation was shit from the start. They immediately thought that it was someone who Christine had to know that maybe lived in the area close to her family. So they were interviewing people in the area. And of course, people would be like, well, this this guy's kind of weird and this person's kind of weird. And so they had their ideas of persons of interest. And all this time, her poor family has no idea what's happened to Christine. This poor nine-year-old little girl who's missing in Canada in October. And you know it's cold and she's so tiny. And where is she? Three months later, a farmer 55 kilometers away from the Jessup's home stumbles on a decomposed body. I'm going to go ahead and tell you content warning because I'm going to give a little bit of detail that this may be too much for some. So skip forward a couple of minutes if if you need to. So when they found her body, she was badly decomposed. Her legs were spread apart with her knees like spread outward. They could tell where animals had been scavenging her. Because she was so little, she wore a lot of layers. I don't know if it's because she was cold or if it was to make herself look larger, but she had a lot of layers. And she had a sweater pulled up over her head, and a few of her bones were even scattered around her. Gosh, so like really decomposed. Right. She had on a beige turtleneck and a blue pullover sweater, And a blouse that some of the buttons were missing, but the buttons were found scattered around her. And she had on two pairs of socks. Her underwear was found at her right foot. And her blue corduroy pants with her belt and her shoes were found by her feet. 
the recorder that she had been given at school with her name taped on it was found next to her body. She had been killed by multiple stab wounds. And they say that the stab wounds were so aggressive that they nearly decapitated her and that they were, again, so aggressive that they pierced her vertebra because they went so deep in her tiny little body. Who has that much hatred and anger towards a child? Oh, gosh. I know. And they found semen in her underwear. So they know that she had been sexually assaulted. So there were quite a few suspects, but it did not take long for police to hone in on one specific suspect. And once they honed in on him, they got blinders on and they made their case fit this person. We've heard that before. And usually it turns out not to be a good thing. Right. So let's talk about Guy Paul Morin. Guy lived with his parents not far from the Jessup home. He was 24 years old and worked as a factory worker in, well, a furniture factory. (laughs) (laughs) Clever. Something said next door. Some stuff said, like, in the area. I don't know. I didn't Google Maps it. So, Guy was not the type of typical suburbanite, if you will. You know, he was more of a loner. He Look, I don't want to know my neighbors either, Guy. I don't want to have anything to do with them either. But people thought he was weird. So, that played a part in police being like, oh, he's quote-unquote weird? Well, <laughs> he had to do it, right? Because, again, he was more reclusive and... The fact that this detail is even something that is even brought up is fucking ridiculous. But they're like, he was a beekeeper. Um, okay, well, we have a bee shortage right now. So I was thank about you, Gee. Yeah. I'm like, why is the fact that he had bees in his backyard so weird? Nothing about her had like bee stings or anything. There's no reason that should be like Right, but they're saying that because he was like a beekeeper and he was in this community band and that he was reclusive and... Um, he's in a community band and he does... So he has hobbies. Yeah, he has more hobbies than I fucking do. Yeah, so he's well fucking rounded. Yeah, like I'm like, uh, I mean, I want some fucking local honey. I mean, that's how you fix your allergies. True story. Well, when he was interviewed by police... He didn't help himself, though. He was odd. He said something about girls growing up to be, like, use the word corrupt. And so police were like, what? That's weird, right? I mean, like, we can all, that's fucking weird. Like, that's like some, like, deep-seated, like, like almost like incel bullshit, right? Yeah, for sure. And then there was, like, a break in the interview where the investigators left the room and the recording was still going on. And he was like, red rum, red rum. Okay, he literally sounds like me. I you would not. If you were being interviewed. <laughs> no, I know. No, I know. If you Okay, a nine-year-old's body had just been fucking found yes. in the state that we just talked about. Yes. You would never. He does, you, first of all, he does not sound like you. You don't have any goddamn hobbies. Quit trying to play. <laughs> Touche. 
Second of all, you would never be like red rum. No, because I say red room and it's wrong every time. Like, why did he say that? And he says he does not remember saying red rum. Like he said it like a couple of times. And he says like to this day, he's like, I do not remember saying that. (laughs) Like it was like almost like some sort of like psychosis or something. He says Mm -hmm. he does not remember saying it. Yeah. And and like you can't like there's video of it. Like you cannot dispute it. There is video yeah. of it. It's probably because he is in there and he's like so out of his like element and stuff and he's freaking out. Like I don't know if he did it or not, whatever. But like if he didn't do it and he's like, Oh my gosh, oh my gosh, and he just kinda like went into himself and I don't know why because it's like murder, oh my god, and red rum i don't know yeah well but that is weird it is weird right so the police are like okay this guy's bizarre he's reclusive he has the beehives he's saying the girls are will grow up to be corrupt he's screaming red rum we gotta search his house i do want to say this though just to talk a little bit about the police conduct there was this one piece of shit in the area that his girlfriend or wife had turned him in for assault on like a five-year-old and as part of her interview with police they asked her to like recount throughout was his wife throughout their 12-year marriage like the things that she thought were unusual that they maybe could like you you know they could use as part of his sexual deviance especially towards children Not long after this interview, one of those motherfucking detectives asked her on a date. And when she said, why are you asking me on a date? He told her because he was aroused. Like he was intrigued sexually listening to her talk about the shit with her ex-husband. Um, all of that she said she found weird. Hello, fucking unethical pieces of shit oh for sure so that's just like a snippet of wow like what's going on with this law enforcement and it's like a couple of different jurisdictions because she her body was found in a different place than where she went missing so it's not just like one police department so this is a shit show all over the place but i will say Guy is not the only person they looked at. There were others. However, they honed in on him pretty fucking quickly. And once they honed in on him through their inappropriate relationships with the family, they made the family feel like they had to change their timeline in order for the police's timeline to work. Yeah. Which is not okay. Right. Because, so Guy said... Look, I got off work, clocked out. His time card corroborates his clocking out. He drove, got groceries, went home, unloaded them, had dinner with his family, helped around the house doing some home improvement stuff, took a nap at some point, and went to bed. Okay? And, of course, those, that order is kind of jumbled up. But, I mean, why would he take a nap and then go to bed? So, I realized my order's fucked up. However, his time card... And all of his family, like there's all this stuff to corroborate his story. And so basically the police told the Jessups, hey, are you sure you didn't get home at like 
435, 450, like, like not like 410, right? Because 410 is too fucking early for Guy to have done this. Like, there's no way he could have gotten there and her stuff had been there and all of that. So they needed the family to have gotten there later for them to be able to, to be like, no, 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 he did this. That's not how this works. Right. You don't just get to change facts. So the police start doing surveillance on his house and eventually bring him in and arrest him, search his car and his house, all the things. When they're doing their interview with him, you know, he's fingerprinted and all, and, and they pull up this picture of his fingerprint and they're like, look, this is your fingerprint that we found on her jacket or something, her backpack, whatever. Like, how do you explain that? And he's like... I've never touched this girl. Like, what are you... There's no fucking way that you found my fingerprint on her. Like, there's no fucking way. And it was really... It was a fingerprint that they had gotten off, like, his saxophone or something. Because they had, like, done... Like, searched his stuff. But, of course, they can lie and Uh whatever to get you to confess. And he's like... There's no fucking way you got my fingerprint off of that child. I didn't fucking touch her. I did not do this. They thought they could wear him down and he would be like, oh my gosh. They have me. They have me. How do, like. I didn't do this, but they have me. Yeah, I gotta confess and exactly. try to get off, try to do something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is how we get false confessions. Yep. During the interrogation too, they're telling him like. You might as well confess. If you take this to trial, your family, it's going to cost them six figures to try to defend you. And, you know, so like they're trying to get him to confess because Mm -hmm. it's going to cost his family a lot of money. Like your family is going to pay what your family has to pay to keep you alive and out of jail. Right. Well, it's going to cost the city a lot too when y'all get a lawsuit. Cool. Well, it did eventually go to trial. Of course, he's like, "I, I didn't do this. First of all, there's no fucking time to have done this. But with the family's new timeline, it makes more sense that he could have done it because now the family's timeline has changed. The prosecutors presented evidence that they found a hair and some clothing fiber that belonged to Christine in his car. And the prosecutors also had two jailhouse informants that they used saying that Guy had confessed to both of them. Yeah, right. Like, I literally never believe jailhouse informants unless it's, like, an undercover detective being a jailhouse informant. Sometimes I believe it. It depends on the person. But he has never faltered in the interrogations where these police are like, we have all of this evidence. He's like, nah. He's not going to go to prison where he's, you know, in the right. Okay, actually, I did it. When he knows, he didn't do it. Right, and especially these random jailhouse informants that he has no ties to. So it's Mm -hmm. not like he's a gang member and these jailhouse informants are also members of his gang that he has like a pre-established trust relationship with just because they have that in common. You know, like he literally has no ties to these people, never met him, never going to see him again. Like there's literally nothing that would make him tell these people, not, much less two people. Right. Why? Like Why would people? he do that? And of course, the defense is like, 
um, you're giving them leniency on their convictions for this testimony. So they have something to gain from this testimony. And then, of course, the defense is like, "Mm, we also have our own experts that refute everything that you're saying about this forensic evidence that you collected and we're proving that how you're presenting this is one misleading and your collection of it is improper so this is bullshit so at the end of the trial the jury comes back and acquits him of the murder of christine jessup so i do want to say really quickly because i did a lot about the name of that podcast a second ago because i didn't want to say this out loud um and ruin it like i did last time when I said the true crime all the time. So they have two podcasts. They have true crime all the time and they have true crime all the time unsolved. And it was a true crime all the time unsolved one. Oh, okay. And so I didn't want to say that. And then you'd be like, oh. Yeah, well, because when you said that, I was like, no, that's really a podcast. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> they have two and it was the unsolved one that this was on. Mm, okay. Okay. So he was found not guilty in February of 1986. Well, in June of 1987... The Supreme Court of Canada overturned his acquittal. They said that the judge confused the jury with his legal instructions, and they ordered a retrial. I didn't even know you could do that. What? I knew that you could do that if there was a conviction, but I didn't know you got a redo if they were found not guilty. Right. Like, if I thought if they were found not guilty, like, you're done. Yeah. Me too. Yeah. It was fucking overturned. And a retrial. So at the second trial, everybody was more prepared. The defense team was way more prepared because they had realized how much stuff that the prosecutors never fucking turned over to them in the first trial. Shady. Ugh. There, again, there was a lot of questions about the integrity of the physical evidence. They got a second autopsy run. Now, for this next part, it's pretty sensitive, so I want to do a content warning for sexual assault. So, at this trial, it came out that Christine's brother had actually told the police that when Christine was seven years old... That he and a couple of his friends were having sex with her. What? Yeah, and that, but he was being sexually assaulted as well. So it wasn't like, I mean, yes, he was part of assaulting her, but it was like they had these two older friends that were like the ringleaders that were kind of making him do it. And when he realized, like, wait, this is not right. He put an end to everything. And so, like, that came out. You know, there was just so much more that that came out. But for some reason, at this trial, the jury found him guilty of first-degree murder. Are you kidding me? But here's the thing. You know, at the first trial, it seemed like the public was like, he did it, he did it, he did it. But then it was like when they, he was found not guilty, it was like there was a shift. And everybody's like, wait, maybe he didn't do it. And then at this second trial, it was like when they found out that the prosecution overturned the acquittal, it was almost like people were so pissed that they didn't trust the process 
to me. That's that's me putting my own opinion on it. I, honestly, I don't know if that's why. But the public turned and they were so on Guy's side and they were so pissed that this went back to trial again and that he was found guilty this time. That there were so many petitions and people supporting him for appeals to change this guilty plea. So within weeks of his conviction, people were like, this is not fucking right. Like, was is this even fair? Like, can you do this? Can you overturn an acquittal and then go back to trial? Like, how is this even okay? So what they did, so this is, I've never even heard of this. They actually released him from jail pending his appeal. What? Yes. Here's another shitty thing I heard on, um, I didn't see this anywhere. I heard this on True Crime all the time. They said that he was actually, you know, usually with people who killed children, you know, they keep them in a, not necessarily like, like a segregation to protect them, right? They put Guy in Gen Pop immediately. Wow. They wanted him to be taken out. Exactly. So when he, so I'm going to back up just a little bit, just so you kind of understand the dates of where we are. So he was convicted in July of 92, and then he was released on bail pending his appeal on February of 93. In January of 95, they sent the underwear to a Boston lab that specialized in degraded DNA so that they could test it against his to see if it was a match. And it wasn't and so (laughs) oh my god so it proved that he has been telling the truth this whole time and that he did not kill christine and they're like hmm well okay maybe and he mm, he still could be the guy he could be involved somehow you know what i mean like they're not gonna no, they did. No, 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 did no. They? Oh, yeah, they did. They said, we're sorry. They apologized to him. They let him go. They gave him like a $1.25 million oh, okay. settlement, which I think that they should give him that $1.25 million settlement and pay his attorney fees. Yeah. Because that probably just covers his attorney fees. Right. I'm just going to say. So I think that they should do that. But he got a $1.25 million settlement. And, you know, he's told reporters, he said, no one will ever look at me again and say he might have done it. He said, I had that dagger hanging over my head, all right, but this is like a motion picture ending. But this, there was this whole Kaufman report that came out of it, and it called for, like, rigorous measures to maintain objectivity with scientific testing and making sure police have strict protocols for physical evidence. And while that's great and wonderful, where does it leave the family? You know, now they have this DNA sample. And yeah, they can put it in VICAP or wherever and hope and pray that it matches somebody, that they get arrested and all. But unless somebody gets arrested with a match, they're never going to know. And the thing of it is, they assume that it's somebody that was close to the family. So it wasn't until 2019 that cold case detectives decided to do what 
the Golden State Killer detectives did. Ooh. They wanted to use genetic genealogy tracing to see if they could figure out who in the fuck killed Christine Jessup. So they knew that from the three different police forces that had worked on the case, they had DNA from 320 men. And so they took that and started testing. They did use a couple of the kind of like 23andMe type things. Not that, but those type things. And they eventually narrowed it down to two familial matches that were removed by multiple generations. Basically like fourth cousins. Then they got to where they had a match from a maternal side and one from a paternal side. One of the articles that I found, one of the detectives said they started with 3,000 people, whittled it down to 5,000 people, then to 1,000 people, then to second and third cousins, and then they had their man. Oh my gosh. The DNA matched at the time, 28-year-old Calvin Hoover. Who How, the hell is Hoover? He was a family fucking friend. Of course. And he is one who helped search for her, was at all the things. Of course. And when they found out who it was, it was like a light bulb went off for her brother. Because he remembered... That, I guess maybe the day before, his mom had called a few people to tell them, like, to call a few people to check in. And Calvin Hoover's wife was one of them. And when Janet talked to his wife, Christine was having a breakdown because she wanted to go see her dad. And Janet was telling her, you can't go see him. You're too young. You can't, you can't go see him. You're too young. You have to stay home. And that's who she was on the phone with. So Calvin would have known that she was home alone because she wanted to go so bad to see her dad. And she couldn't while her mom and brother went. Wow. And he chose that time. It was not a crime of opportunity. He fucking knew what he was doing, and yeah. he chose that moment to go and attack and kill that poor child. But police could not go and arrest him because Calvin Hoover died by suicide in 2015. Wow. Not that it makes it any better, but at least at this point, it's no longer an unsolved crime, and there is a little bit of closure to what happened to that poor, innocent child and her poor family knows what happened to Christine. Yes. Gosh. Bless her brother's heart, too. Well, and he, you know, he broke down on the stand saying, like, I'm so sorry to Guy because he's like, you know, I thought you did this. The police told us you did this. They basically made us change our story because they said you did this. I'm so sorry. Wow. Yeah. Well, you know, like, he has so much trauma from just... Fuck everything. Yeah, his sexual assault, his dad in jail, his fucking sister getting raped and murdered, the police lying to him about who fucking did it, making them lie about it. Yes, and then his sister's fucking murderer not being well. First of all, air quotes being caught Mm -hmm. going to trial 
being acquitted, going back to trial because that was overturned and then that was overturned and then finally getting finding out who did it. Oh, by the by, they died by suicide. So there's really no justice. Yeah. Wow. <sighs> I'm glad there is closure, like you said, though. It's not closure, but it's as close to closure as that family's ever going to get. Yes. There was one weird thing that I, I forgot to say. This is so weird. Not, I shouldn't say weird. Well, it's weird. So her brother one night after, this was like after she was like buried and everything, he had a dream that like basically it it wasn't complete. She wasn't complete. And he like woke up and he was like, we got to go back to where she was, we, she was found. And when they went back, they found some more of her bones. Whoa. Yes. And so they like put them in a cup and took them to the police. And it was like five years before the police did anything with them. Oh my gosh. Uh-huh. Just like the ineptitude. I mean, it's just like the cup runneth over. Wow. But hopefully with the Cuffman report and all of that, like there's protocols in place that will eliminate this. And yes, protocols yeah. sometimes sucks because yes, you have to do all these little things and it's like, yeah, you know what? Yes, it fucking sucks. But on the other hand, well, you know what? If people didn't chop off the wrong leg in surgery, we wouldn't have to do a timeout and say, oh, wait, which leg is it? Are we doing the right <laughs> yeah. leg? Oh, is that the one we signed? Okay, cool. Let's keep going. Yeah. Oh, wait, timeout. We got to count all the instruments. Do we get them all? Cool. Well, maybe if you'd stop leaving shit in people, we wouldn't have to do those things. Yeah. I really didn't think there would be an answer, though. Like, and then you kept just like coming with isn't this such a good like, i mean I, I air quotes around good it's a roller coaster yes so many just, twists and turns yeah. this was a heavy week it was i hate ending all my stories like this when they're heavy like this well i mean yours was heavy too but fuck you should have known what was in my head that i had a heavy one and you changed yours okay um you have these powers why don't you use them for good like i'm gonna do double work i barely do single work just kidding. <laughs> Just kidding. But you know I'm not doing double work. Hmm. Well, we hope that you liked it. We're back to normal. Both of us can breathe through our nose. Ish. <laughs> you know what? You know what? I mean, if you get the bloopers, you hear how much I sniff. I never can breathe through my nose. <laughs> but uh, it feels good to not just have like... Words that just don't come out because I have to blow my nose and then carry it and like how I blow my nose. Because you go, this is how Donna blows her nose. I, it is not. It's like, is anything, no, nothing's coming out because you're barely blowing. Well. You blow dick harder than you blow your nose. Well, it does. <laughs> <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Was that too far? No. <laughs> It's never too far. <laughs> Thanks for sticking with us for the serious and the, well, you know, not so serious. Thank you so much to everyone who came out to see us in Kansas City. Yes. That means the world to us, like more than you will ever, ever know. We hope that as everything's opening up, we get to go and meet more of y'all because we love doing it. So thank y'all so much. And remember, creep it real and, and don't, don't get, get scared. scared.